This is Our American Stories. And you're listening to John Williams on the piano right now. Born on this day in history, in 1932. He's an American composer, conductor, and pianist. And you're about to hear one heck of a story this hour. He's a giant, a name you may not know, but my goodness, you know his work. And you're really going to know his work and him and his life story when we're done here. With a career spanning over six decades, he has composed some of the most popular and recognizable film scores in cinematic history. To many of the highest grossing films of all time, including Jaws, the Star Wars series, Superman, E.T., Indiana Jones series, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, and the first three Harry Potter films. Williams has been associated with director Steven Spielberg since 1974, composing music for all but two of his feature films. Other notable works by Williams include theme music for the Olympic Games. That's enough right there for a career, don't you think? NBC Sunday Night Football, the mission theme used by NBC News, the television series Lost in Space and Land of the Giants, and the incidental music for the first season of Gilligan's Island. Williams has composed numerous classical concerti and other works for orchestral ensembles and solo instruments, too. He served as the Boston Pops' principal conductor from 1980 to 1993 and is now the orchestra's laureate conductor. John Williams has been nominated for 50 Academy Awards, winning five, six Emmy Awards, winning three, 25 Golden Globe Awards, winning four, 66 Grammys, winning 22. With 50 Oscar nominations, Williams currently holds the record for the most Oscar nominations for a living person and is the second most nominated person in Academy Award history behind, well, a little guy named Walt Disney with 59. 45 of Williams' Oscar nominations are for Best Original Score, five for Best Original Song. He won four Oscars for Best Original Score and one for Best Scoring, Adaption, and Original Song Score. And just listen to that theme from Star Wars. If that doesn't take you to another galaxy far, far away, you might want to check your pulse. In 2005, the American Film Institute selected Williams' score to 1977 Star Wars as the greatest American film score of all time. The soundtrack to Star Wars was preserved by the Library of Congress into the National Recording Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Williams was inducted into the Hollywood Bowls Hall of Fame in 2000 and was a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors in 2004 and the AFI Life Achievement Award in 2016. He composed the score for eight movies in the top 20 highest-grossing movies in U.S. box office history. That's just crazy. Here's Steven Spielberg honoring John Williams from the Kennedy Center Awards in 2004. 
Well, it's a great honor to be here to uh, stand in the long shadow that John Williams cast and attempt to shed some light on it. John Williams reinterprets our films with a musical narrative that makes our hearts pound during action cliffhanger scenes, gets the audience to scream when we were hoping they would do so, and pushes that same audience from the brink to breaking out into applause. It's not Hollywood he writes for, he writes for all of you. Did you ever hear a seven-year-old hum the first nine notes from Darth Vader's theme? <laughs> or see a bunch of kids jumping into a swimming pool going, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The day that John called me over to his house, he was very pleased because he had just completed the score for Jaws, and he wanted to play some of the main themes on the piano. And I sat next to him, and he just used four fingers, and he began going, da, 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 that was it. And I said, that's all? <laughs> he, he said, I really think that's all you need. I think John Williams is a national treasure. He's as American as apple pie and President Bush's mom. <laughs> and John, you're the greatest thing that has ever happened to my career. And for that, I want to thank you. And I congratulate you for this exceptional honor. And imagine hearing those words from someone like Steven Spielberg. It's pretty heady. And by the way, we know this about Bernard Herrmann's very simple soundtrack to Psycho. The same thing, well, Hitchcock probably would have said, is that all? Those few violins going back and forth? And it makes Jaws. I mean, that soundtrack makes the suspense. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about this remarkable life. We're going to take you from his birth in Floral Park, New York, straight up to the present. Because, well, he's still doing what he does. We're going to go out with the Jaws soundtrack... More on the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932.
This is Our American Stories. You're listening to John Williams' score in Jurassic Park. And for the hour, we're going to spend time with John, his life. Born on this day in history in 1932, Greg, during the break, was making a, a comment that modern classical music is the scores to movies because the postmodernist stuff that's in concert halls, no one wants to listen to. And so this is our classical music, and John Williams, well, there's no one better at it. Williams was born on February 8th, 1932, in Floral Park, New York, the son of Esther and Johnny Williams. Here, he talks about his early life and one of the most profound moments that he experienced as a child. At home, there was always music in the house because my father was a professional musician, and he played the drums and percussion in radio orchestras in the 1930s and 40s, way back then. And we had a piano in the living room on which I practiced every day because he insisted that I have piano lessons. But we also had a basement in our house where there was another piano, a little older piano, which is where my brother, who played the drums, or the neighborhood kids who played the clarinet and the trumpet would come. We wouldn't go to the living room. My my mother might not appreciate it. We had our little jam session, so to speak, in the basement of the house. One of the most profound experiences that I had as a child was playing the piano, and my little neighbor friend had a trumpet, and to discover when he played the trumpet, some of you may know that a trumpet, well, there are many keys, but usually the key of B-flat. So to play my piano music with me, I had to write the note once, get a sheet of music paper, and write for the trumpet the notes one step higher so that I could play along with him. And when that happened, that seemed like a miracle to me, <laughs> that actually something I'd put down with my hand, even though it wasn't my own music, it made it possible for us to play together. The fun of that and the sense of discovery of, of, of the, that one could adjust, manipulate, arrange music, and then have the joy of doing it with someone else was, I think, one of the most profound experiences I had as a young person studying music. And a series of moments where I discovered, I'll use the word again, the joy of making music together. Already an aspiring musician at such a young age, Williams would eventually begin reading about orchestration. I didn't have an idea in my mind until well into my teenage years that one could be a composer professionally. I didn't, I didn't have that idea. But by the time I was in high school, I was able to, as we'd say, orchestrate, to arrange music for orchestra. We had a student orchestra. The reason for that was because my father had books on theory and orchestration in the house that I used to love to read and try to understand. And he would explain to me a little bit. Later on, teachers did also. John Williams then began to apply his craft in Hollywood. Let's hear him tell that story. The first work that I did in the Hollywood film studios was as a pianist. Uh, I, they, they, in, the, in the old Columbia studios where they had a contract orchestra, there was an opening position for piano, which I auditioned for, and I was hired by the then music director, Morris Stoloff, who the young people will not remember. So that meant that every day, Monday through Friday, four or five days a week, I sat in the orchestra at Columbia Studios playing under Mr. Stoloff's direction and watching him underscore films that, about westerns or or love stories, or scary films, or comedies, or whatever, and uh, had a first-hand view as an orchestra member of how this process of creating and, and, and fitting music to film went. 
And two or three years into my time at in the orchestra there, the same gentleman asked, said, would you, uh, would you prepare the music for one scene for next week's recording? So I did one scene for next week's recording, and apparently it worked out well enough <laughs> that he said, you do two scenes for us, we're a little short this week, maybe three a month <laughs> later. So it was a very a series of steps, or increments, if you like to say. I progressed from the piano bench of sitting in the orchestra and playing the piano to a young man sitting not far from the music library writing the music for next Tuesday's recording. So what's the biggest challenge for John Williams? He says writing themes like the Imperial March for Darth Vader. The themes in these movies, I think for me at least, are the most difficult things to write. But I will look at a film like Star Wars, for example, and there'll be a character. There is Darth Vader. We've never seen him before with that helmet that's on there. And he's terrifying. And I try to analyze what this character is. This is somebody who's imperious, meaning great authority and great power. And also frightening in many ways. And also has a military bearing about it. Those qualities are starting points for me. To, to develop musical phrases that would fit this kind of a character. So I, I think that the trick is to think about the person we're writing for, try to get inside that person to the, to the qualities and characteristics that he or she shows us and try to describe that musically. And, and that's the, the, probably for me the biggest challenge and the, and the most difficult thing to get just right. The Imperial March is first heard in The Empire Strikes Back in low piccolos as the Galactic Empire sends probe droids across the galaxy in search of Luke Skywalker. Its major opening occurs as Star Destroyers amass, and Darth Vader is first presented in the film. Let's take a minute to just listen to the rest of The Imperial March by John Williams.
The soundtrack for Star Wars won an Academy Award for Best Original Score in 1977, along with a Golden Globe and three Grammys. Here's John Williams describing the difference between composing music for film and composing for a live audience. When we're writing music for film, or preparing any part of the film, we need to think that probably the audience is going to see and hear this once. They will maybe do, see it repeatedly, and that's what people usually do. But unless, they, unless the first impression is a good impression, I think mm-hmm. the, the assumption that we're going to see and hear it once is a, is a fair one. Also, the complication with music is that, in the, unlike a concert where there's only music that we hear, in the film we hear the music, we hear the sound of the spaceship, we hear the sound of the guns, the sound of the dialogue. So we have to understand that the music is part of a, a, a whole that if we try, as a composer, if I try to take the whole of everyone's attention the way I would in a concert hall, it won't succeed. We have to find our place in the hierarchy or in the level of where the dialogue, the words go, the sound effects, the explosions and the sword sounds go, and where the music goes. And that's got to be a wedded unity, one thing uh, that that is the object of how we try to make, marry the, the music to the film. And when we come back, more on the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932. And we leave you here with the score, the soundtrack from Superman. This is Our American Stories. We're celebrating the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932. And we're listening to him to the fallen from Saving Private Ryan. Let's take a listen.
Williams is often asked what his favorite film score was. Here's his answer. I think for me, the music for E.T., the combination of that film with that particular score, I think in, in its entirety, for me personally, I think is the one that we got, that came closest to being ideally right in every scene. Here's that theme from E.T. The score was the fourth in history to accomplish the feat of winning the Academy Award, Golden Globe, Grammy, and BAFTA. The two previous were Star Wars and Jaws. They were also composed by Williams, who remains the only person to have won all awards for the same score more than once. To date, a total of only six scores have won all four awards. Sometimes it can be difficult to get a piece of music to fit properly into any given scene. Here, John Williams tells a story about the difficulty of getting this music to fit the ending scene of E.T. I did have an experience with Steven Spielberg at the end of E.T. where music was about 10 minutes for the last reel. Children are chasing, escaping from police and so on very quickly. And... I, I made several takes and I could not make it fit the film. So finally, Stephen said, "We'll turn the film off. We just play the music the way you want to play it, and I will re-edit the film to it." Which he did. I wish I could do it all the time. It would make life, <laughs> make life a lot easier. But I also, when I look at that scene now, I think some, there's something sort of operatic about the way the orchestra was playing it, mm-hmm. that w- they were let free to go. Free they weren't watching me to what's coming the next cue. We would just play the, you know. And I think it gave some luft, lift to the, to the final scene. The performance of the orchestra animates the f- film in a way that film cannot live without music. It's true. It really cannot. We try. You take the film away and it looks dead, whatever. The, mm-hmm. I think it's safe and correct to say that. And by the way, what insight Spielberg had. I mean, how many directors would say, well, let's just reshoot what I shot. Your music's more important. What insight. By the way, John Williams enjoys what he does, and he has some great advice for young people. One of my great good fortunes is that work for me is fun, and it's what I do every day. I write something every day, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Just the habit, the practice of truly six and a half days a week, something goes on paper. You know what I would say to young people is really what I say to myself. I mean, if you can, if you can find the joy in music... And find first of all, life is a great gift. Life itself is just that we're here and we think and we can share things and see what's beautiful, hear what's beautiful. Music first among all of the sounds we think. Some of us musicians do. But find the joy in music. Find the joy in life. Find the joy in each other. Find the joy in work. Uh, and and life becomes really very very beautiful that way. I think. Go out and find the joy. Great advice. Williams loves young people, and young people, well, they love him too. Especially these two kids who made a spontaneous decision to set up and play the Star Wars theme in front of John Williams' house on July of 2016, with a high part played by 13-year-old trumpeter Bryce Hayashi and the lower flugelhorn part played by Michael Miller, John Williams, the master himself, comes out to greet the kids and the mom who was running the camera. 
Oh, man. I live down the street. Are you recording? You're coming. Hello. I, I started to listen. I thought, oh, they would never make it. And they did. <laughs> he <laughs> made it. He's, He's played the 13. Fantastic. He's 13. This is Bryce well, Hayashi. By the way, that John Williams didn't call security, that he came out and greeted these these two young people, what a gift itself, and what a person. And it just tells you a lot about his nature and his character. I mean, the last thing necessarily he might want is, you know, random musicians coming in front of his house. But he's touched, actually. He knows what this took. He knows it was an offering. And, boy, you want to talk about the word joy? There it is, folks. That's it. Here, John Williams explains... The process of preparing to write a score for a movie. If I don't read a script, I'm very happy because I look at this director's cut, I don't know what's happening next, and I'm bored, or I'm excited, and I need to have that memory when I write. The, I think this is a, maybe a boring moment. Maybe I can do something in the sound of this thing and improve the situation. So for me, the first thing is the rhythm of the film. And then with character and texture and style and all the other endless elements that go into it. But a director's cut is an invaluable thing for me. It'd be wonderful if we hear some music and we say it could only be it could be only belong to that film. It's not always possible to get that kind of uh, curve in the sculpture, you know. But we try, and try he did, and try he does. When we come back, more on the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932. As always, all of our this days in history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu to see all of their great courses that are available online for free. There are 16 of them in total. We're closing this segment out with John Williams' soundtrack and score from Born on the 4th of July. And by the way, anyone who thought that, that Tom Cruise couldn't act, this was one heck of a piece of acting by Tom Cruise, too.
is Our American Stories for the hour, the life of John Williams, born on this day in history in 1932, nominated for 50 Academy Awards. And you're listening to the soundtrack, The Close Encounters of a Third Kind. wrote the score for Schindler's List. The album won the Academy Award for Best Original Score, the BAFTA Award for Best Film Music, and the Grammy Award for Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media. It also received a Golden Globe Award nomination for the Best Original Score. Here, Williams talks about working with violin player Itzhak Perlman. Steven Spielberg made a beautiful movie, which most people will remember. Mm-hmm. And in one of the early scripts, it called for a violinist to play a Jewish gentleman entertaining the German officers in, in an officers club. And the scene, alas, was not used. But because it was part of the original plan, I said to Stephen, we have to have a violinist to do this thing. So I asked Itzhak Perlman if he would come and do it, and he said yes. Knowing I was writing these notes for Itzhak Perlman, knowing his sound, I, it really led me, I think, where I hoped where I needed to go. I had known him for 20 years or more. It's a, every time I saw him, this is before the film, he would say, John, when are you going to have a film that I can play the violin? <laughs> every time I see him. So finally, this came along, listen, I called up and I said, Itzhak, I have a film for, that you will be interested in. Oh, I don't know. I don't think I want to do a film. <laughs> so, yeah. I said, I think you should look at this thing. Maybe it's exactly. something you should want to do. He came crazy. So he came up to Boston. We were called Symphony Hall with the orchestra there. And he looked a little bit of the film, and he just, he couldn't, it's so emotional, some of the scenes in there. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to look at it to rehearse. He said, we would just play. I don't want to see it. No. He brought his great art to the film. And uh, which embraces his feeling, his history, his all of, all of it, you know. So he is a, it is the film, it is the music, it is his voice. Um, it suggests so much rich history of all of, the, all of the story. Let's take a minute to listen to the music from Schindler's List.
Another major film score by the great John Williams that cannot go without mention is the theme from the Indiana Jones series. Here's Steven Spielberg and John Williams talking about the production of this iconic theme. Too heavy. heavy. Too heavy. Yeah. Too oh, heavy yeah. Let me let me just uh, okay. react to what we've heard. John, you know, he he'd actually written two Raiders themes. He had written. Play that for me. Which I freaked out over. I loved it so much. Then he said, and here's another possible Raiders score. Uh, Raiders main theme, and he played. And, and so he had had two choices, and I think my only input was to say, can't you use both? And he did. He made the latter the bridge, and he made the former the main theme. That's a perfect example of the kind of collaboration that we have, we have done with these things. Interesting about that. A very simple little sequence of notes. But I spend more time on those little bits of musical grammar to get them just right so that they seem inevitable seem like they've always been there, they're so simple. And uh, I don't know how many permutations I will go through with a six-note motif like that, one note down, one note up, and spend a lot of time on these little simplicities, which are often the hardest things to capture, I think, for anybody. John Williams won the 44th Annual American Film Institute Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. During his acceptance speech, he had this to say about music and film. Music is like architecture, sculpture, and so on, thousands of years old. And film is the new kid on the block, 100 years barely. And though we will watch its evolution carefully, side by side with the art of music, I am enormously grateful, as all composers are, to film for giving us the broadest possible audience worldwide that any composer has ever enjoyed. I, uh, I'm certain that Beethoven would have shunned it but Wagner would have had his own studio out there in Burbank <laughs> with, a, with a huge water tank with a W on it. Williams then thanked George Lucas. George Lucas. George Lucas, certainly a genius. George, you've given me the greatest opportunity in the broadest canvas to write themes for characters. Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Anakin, Luke and Leia, The Force, and so on. For the first film, George, I even wrote, you'll remember, a quite heated love theme with, with, a, with a melody and a development section and a torrid climax, thinking that Luke and Leo were lovers. <laughs> and, and I found out two years later that they were brother and sister. And then he gave thanks to a colleague Director Steven Spielberg, who he'd worked with since 1974, again, composing music for all but two of Spielberg's feature films. Steven and I have worked together for I don't know, 43 or 4 years, something amazing. And it's like a perfect marriage, you know, we really have never had an argument of any kind. And it is a testament to this man's humanity and his loyalty and his patience and his very good taste. <laughs> Williams then shares a story about working with Spielberg on the soundtrack of Schindler's List. I have
have a favorite Steven Spielberg story that I want to share with you. And that has to do with the film Schindler's List, which you will all remember. And Steven came back with his film to show me the first cut, as he always does. And we went to his projection room, and the purpose of this was to see the film and then discuss the music for the film. And you'll remember the film. It's the story of Oskar Schindler, who's a German civilian who protected and employed potential victims for the Holocaust. Powerful masterpiece of a film. And the film ends in the state of Israel, you remember, and the survivors and their children go to the graveside of Oskar Schindler to place stones on the graveside to honor the memory of, of Oskar Schindler. And the lights came up and the film was over and it was time for Stephen and me to begin to talk about the role of the music. And I was so overwhelmed by the film, I really could not speak. And I went out and walked around the building for a few minutes to gather myself and came back in to start the meeting with Stephen. And I said, Stephen, this is truly a great film and you need a better composer than I am for this film. And he said very sweetly, I know, but they're all dead. <laughs> and there you have it. The life of John Williams. And really, 55 Academy Award nominations. Only Walt Disney had more at 59. And my goodness, the numbers. Five Oscars, three Emmys. 66 Grammy Awards, and he won 22 of them. And so we end as we begin the soundtrack from Star Wars. This is Our American Stories, the life of John Williams, brought to us, as always, by our friends at Hillsdale College. Six years Jesse James has led this outlaw band, picking his way on a thoroughbred grade through the trails of this southern land with a gun in his hand. And we're listening to Charlie Daniels singing Riding with Jesse James from the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And after a century and a half, Jesse James remains one of the most iconic and romanticized figures in American history. Many people even see Jesse James as a type of Robin Hood or a folk hero, despite his sometimes murderous ways. Although separating fact from fiction can be quite a task, we brought in America's best storyteller, 
of the Old West. Roger McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Here's McGrath. The great American poet, Carl Sandburg, said, Jesse James is the only American bandit who is classical, who is to this country what Robin Hood or Dick Turpin is to England, whose exploits are so close to the mythical and apocryphal. Well, most biographers of Jesse James would agree with Sandberg's description. They portray James as dashing, courageous, and romantic. And he certainly was all of those things. However, it can also be ruthless, cunning, and deadly. Most of all, though, he was extraordinarily good at what he did, rob banks and trains. For 16 years, Jesse James rode and robbed and went unapprehended. When his end did come, it came not at the hands of a lawman, but at the hands of a traitor in his own gang. Jesse James was born in 1847 in Clay County at the far western edge of Missouri, an area known as Little Dixie. He is the second son of Robert and Zerelda James. Their older son, Frank James, is born in 1843. The father, Robert James, is a Baptist minister. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. Robert James, he's selected by a group of men there who want to go out west to California. And he's the chaplain on this expedition to go out gold mining. Jesse's a very young child at this time, and his father dies in California. Jesse's mother, and now widow, Zerelda James, is a fierce southern woman. She remarries twice after Robert's death and continues to manage her late husband's 300-acre hemp farm and seven slaves. Here's historian David Eisenbach. Zerelda raised both of her sons uh, to not only uh, be for the institution of slavery, but to fight for it and to commit crimes in the name of the cause. Her second marriage lasts no more than a few months before that husband leaves also. Then in 1855, she marries Dr. Reuben Samuel, who spends most of his time farming rather than practicing medicine. He's quiet and reserved. Zerelda is stormy and assertive. It proves a good match, and they have four children together. But life in Missouri in the 1850s is hardly stable. The question of slavery is ripping apart the American frontier. When Jesse is just nine, the Kansas-Missouri border war erupts. During the five years of bloody war that follow, everybody on the border is forced to take sides. In 1854, the institution of slavery is being challenged in the nation's capital. The Nebraska Territory on Missouri's border is ready to become a state. Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas believes that the majority of citizens in a territory should decide the issue of slavery for themselves. Douglas proposes splitting the territory into Kansas and Nebraska and have the residents in each area vote for a slave state or a free state. The Kansas-Nebraska Act leaves the decision on whether a new territory would be slave or free to the voters. This bill will triumph. It will impart peace to the country and stability to the union. 
No opposition to this act leads to the formation of the Republican Party and its first presidential candidate, John C. Fremont, in 1856. Well, nonetheless, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes, which means slavery could possibly expand into new areas. This ignites a firestorm, and Kansas becomes a battleground as free soil proponents rush in from the north and slavery advocates rush in from Missouri. Western Missouri becomes a staging ground for pro-slavery Southerners and are pejoratively called bushwhackers. Free soil farmers from the north are called Jayhawkers. Kansas becomes bleeding Kansas. Could be said, the Civil War starts in Kansas in the late 1850s. On the James family farm, Zerelda is busy shaping her boys to be the next generation of pro-Confederate fighters. Here's Jesse James historian, Michael Gooch. She was not a wallflower by any means, very vocal, very outspoken. Don't you take anything from those Yankees, you hear me? It's every man's responsibility to hold on to what they've got. Over the next six years, the James family farm transforms into a Confederate stronghold. On April 12, 1861, the South fires on Fort Sumter and the Civil War formally begins. Frank James is immediately plunged into battle, fighting for the militia in the Confederate Army. But Union troops rout the Confederate forces in Missouri and then occupy Clay County. Here's T.J. Stiles, Andrew Nelson, and Civil War historian Christopher Phillips. The local militia forces began to raid the homes of those suspected of assisting the insurgents and partisans in Clay County. And the war quickly took on this savage counterinsurgency guerrilla warfare conflict that can be some of the most savage warfare of all. The southern sympathizers in this area could easily be taken out, lynched in their own yards. Their houses were burned on a regular basis, livestock confiscated by the Union authorities, and it became an eye for an eye. It was so bad that uh, one Union commander actually ordered the depopulation of four entire counties of western Missouri. Everyone had to leave, and then their homes were burned. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Jesse James and, of course, pre-Civil War America. This is Our American Stories. Jesse don't know much, but he's learning fast. Ain't seen a man take to it like young Jesse has. And we're listening to Johnny Cash singing Six Guns Shooting. When we last left off with the inevitable approaching Civil War, Jesse James' brother Frank has joined a southern guerrilla band of bushwhackers, and the James family's hotly contested border state of Missouri is being flooded by both Union and Confederate sympathizers. Let's return to Roger McGrath. Here on Our American Stories, we continue with the story of Jesse James. 
Here's Jesse James biographer Dan Marcoux. Union militia in the area started looking for these bushwhackers. Zeralda had told everyone that Frank was one of them. 15-year-old Jesse is out plowing in a field when northern soldiers come looking for Frank. Go for your brother, Frank. I don't know where he is. I believe you do, the little rebel tongue. Hang Frank's respected stepfather, Dr. Ruben Samuel, to a tree. Ruben! Right in front of Zerelda and Jesse. Until Ruben finally gives up Frank's location. It's this violent experience that will push Jesse to join his brother in the spring of 1864. To be treated like the Jameses were treated demanded that vengeance be taken or you could not hold your head up as a man. In Missouri, vengeance is best got riding with one of the dozens of Confederate guerrilla bands. In the company of these men who operate outside the rules of war, Jesse James will be schooled in the art of ambushing violence and terror. There are no papers to sign, no uniforms, no government-issue firearms. Jesse simply follows creeks and hog trails into the darkness of the Missouri woods where the Confederate guerrillas make camp. Most notorious leader of these Confederate guerrilla bands is Quantrill's Raiders, commanded by William Quantrill. Here's Mark Gardner, author of Shot All to Hell, Jesse James, The Northfield Raid, and The Wild West's Greatest Escape. Quantrill's Raiders were guerrilla fighters fighting for the South. They didn't necessarily fight in traditional ways, and the way they fought could often be very savage, very violent, and their targets could be civilians as well as military. By 1863, Frank James is riding with Quantrill, and a year later, so too, is 17-year-old Jesse. Quantrill's band raid, loot, burn, and kill. Their main targets are the railroads, the lifeblood of the Union advance. One of Quantrill's lieutenants, Bloody Bill Anderson, said of Jesse, not to have any beard, he is the keenest and cleanest fighter in the command. Well, during the summer of 1864, Jesse is shot in the chest. But within a month, he's back in the saddle, and he participates in a train hijacking led by Bloody Bill at Centralia, Missouri. Instead of capturing supplies, they find something even more valuable. Here's Civil War historian Donald Frazier. This train has aboard a number of Union forces and home guards that are on their way home. They're unarmed. They really pose no threat, but they've now fallen to Bloody Bill Anderson and his band. All you Yankees are gonna die like dogs! Bloody Bill's guerrillas kill four civilians and 22 Union soldiers. Bloody Bill wasn't afraid to send a message. That could be pretty brutal. Confederates justifiably argue the massacres are in response to Union atrocities in Missouri. Jesse is shot in the chest a second time, and shortly thereafter learns of Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox in April 1865. After four years of bloody fighting, though, he has no intention of surrendering. 
for Jesse James, this is not an end of his conflict. This is the end of someone else's conflict. Not Jesse James's conflict, not Frank James's conflict. Their conflict isn't over. It's still going on. Jesse James returns home to his deeply divided border state of Missouri. Here's Old West historian Jeff Morey and David Eisenbach. After the Civil War, the South was hellacious. It had been ruined. And there was a great deal of resentment uh, of Northern authority, of federal authority. Missouri is one of these states that stuck with the Union during the Civil War, but had large sectors of the population that wanted to go with the South in the first place. So you had Missourians fighting Missourians. It's in this incredibly volatile, literally brother against brother world that we get Jesse James. Jesse discovers the war has not only torn apart his homeland, it's left his family with nothing. With Northern Reconstructionists in power across Missouri, Jesse and his brother Frank join forces with their cousins, the brothers Cole, Jim, and Bob Younger, who share their fierce hatred for Yankees. The Youngers also served under Quantrell and Bloody Bill, and ended up losing their father and family home to the Union. Here's Old West historian Marcus Huff. The James and the Youngers had known each other well before the Civil War. Uh, they honed that relationship. They realized the potential they had as a fighting force. What do you reckon's next force? Jesse decides the best way to express his hatred for the North is to go after Northern wealth. They had to do something to strike back against federal authority and everything they saw as being oppressors in their life. They looked at themselves as freedom fighters and tried to strike a blow for Southern manhood and Southern honor and Southern virtue. Having converted to the now worthless Confederate money, there's very little United States currency left in the South. Most of the money held in the banks is coming in from Reconstructionists investing in reunion. Jesse James' decision, therefore, to rob banks is as much political as it is criminal. Go. The gang's first heist is also the first daylight bank robbery in American history during peacetime. Everything in your vault. It occurs at 2 p.m. in Liberty, Missouri, on a cold, snowy day on February 13, 1866. The bank is owned by Republican former militia officers who recently conducted the first Republican Party rally in Clay County's history. The James Younger Gang hits the jackpot with a sum equal to nearly $900,000 in today's money. And the bank is now known as the Jesse James Bank Museum. Rob a bank? Get a name for you. Four months later, in Jackson County, Missouri, the gang frees two jailed members of Quantrill's Raiders, killing the jailer in their effort. That revolver shot is somewhat of a release. Jesse refused to forget. A lot of his makeup was revenge. Come on, Jesse, we gotta go. Jesse, come on, come on! Get, boys, get! Now, the railroads are established by the Union during the war. And the, the railroad is a symbol of northern power and, and progress and a tool to rebuild the country and its wealth. 
The Pinkerton National Detective Agency, headquartered in Chicago, is hired to guard the cargo of railroads. For Jesse and Frank, the trains are a perfect target. The Pinkertons were essentially the first real detective agency, almost the precursor of an FBI. And their role was to essentially run down criminals. Jesse's first train robbery comes in 1873 near Council Bluffs, Iowa. Jesse and company pull a rail out of place, and the train's engineer, John Rafferty, sees it move as the gang tugs on a rope attached to the rail. He immediately reverses the control lever. He saves the train, but he and the locomotive flip off the track and he dies. Jesse and the boys get some 2,000 from the train safe, not the great haul they were expecting, and decide to rob the passengers also. Then, waving their hats and shouting farewell, the boys gallop off, evidently feeling bad about robbing the passengers. Ladies and gentlemen! In their next train robbery, the James gang examined the hands of each male passenger to determine whether he is a workingman. According to a passenger, Jesse and the boys say they did not want to rob working men or ladies, but only the money and valuables of the plug hat gentleman. But the train robberies are bad for both the soft-handed businessmen and the callous-handed workers. The railroads do not want robbers stopping their train. They don't want robbers terrifying their passengers. It's bad for business. In fact, there was one railroad passenger who said, I don't care if it costs me $500, I'm not riding a train through Missouri. I'll go, I'll go around through Iowa or, or Minnesota or whatever, but I'm not going to take a train through the state of Missouri. And when we come back, more of the life of Jesse James. Our American Stories. We're listening to Levon Helm singing one more shot from the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James. We last left off with the James Younger Gang wreaking havoc on the train industry. Let's pick up from there. Here's Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. News of the James Brothers' holdup spreads quickly. The robbery is a blow to the railroads and embarrasses the Pinkertons. Alan Pinkerton, their founder, who had been a spy for the Union during the Civil War, takes it personally upon himself to bring Jesse to justice. In Kansas City, the name Jesse James catches the eye of a former Confederate major turned newspaper editor who is trying mightily to inspire the Confederate wing of the Democratic Party to jump back into the fight. John Newman Edwards was probably the most hardcore of Confederates. And in his opinion, Southerners had been outlawed, disenfranchised by the North. Edwards is a bit of an alcoholic. He's disappointed. He is uh, an unrepentant rebel. And if there was ever a minister of propaganda 
for the Southern rebels and the outlaws that followed the Civil War, it was John Newman Edwards. In the eyes of John Newman Edwards, Jesse James has achieved hero status. He continues writing about Jesse and those writing with him in a similar vein until his death in 1889. For Edwards and many other Southerners, this is not only about Jesse and other Confederate guerrillas, but about the lost cause of the Old South. Edwards, he wanted to see these downtrodden Confederates take their political future into their own hands. And he thought the James Gang would inspire them. And that's why he started writing positive reports. He made them the legends that they were. In Edwards' fanciful telling, Jesse's religious, kind to women, children, and animals, saves poor widows from foreclosure. Well, he is America's Robin Hood. Thanks to John Newman Edwards and the power of the press, Jesse James is no longer seen as a criminal, but as a folk hero for the South. Here's Jesse James scholar Kathy Jackson. If you're going to be an outlaw, what better way to escape the law and get people to help you than to have them believe that you are doing it for them, for a greater good. Jesse partners with Edwards and continues his robbing spree targeting Northern wealth. Newspaper readers across the country buy into the Robin Hood myth, but not the Pinkertons. Although Governor Silas Woodson issues a $2,000 reward for the James brothers, the biggest threat to Jesse's life comes from the private sector. Alan Pinkerton, who's made an art of reconnaissance and infiltration, sends his ambitious 26-year-old undercover agent, Joseph Witcher, into Clay County. First thing he did after getting off the train was to go to the sheriff, ask where the James or Samuel farm is. He told the sheriff who he was, what he was doing. Sheriff told him, do not go out there. Those boys will kill you. If they don't kill you, the old lady will. He didn't listen. He was later found the next day with four gunshot wounds in his chest and two in his head with a note pinned on his jacket that said, this is what happens to detectives who come looking for the James boys. Alan Pinkerton had never suffered a defeat like this. It became a personal vendetta for him, and he began to undertake the operation on his own expense. A month after murdering Pinkerton agent Witcher, Jesse marries his first cousin, Zerelda Z. Mims, named after Jesse's own mother. But it doesn't slow him down. Trains and banks continue to fall victim to his gang at a startling rate. Largest hauls are $30,000 from the Kansas Pacific Railroad and 10000 in cash and valuables from the Tishomingo Savings Bank in Corinth, Mississippi. On a January night in 1875, a Pinkerton raiding party suspecting Jesse is visiting home surrounds the James family farm. Pinkerton knew that the James boys would at some point come to that house. He had men ready, at least eight to 10. Whenever they learned that Jesse and Frank were at that farm, he was gonna send those men in. What are we waiting for? 
Alan Pinkerton plotted to bring about the demise of the James brothers. The Pinkertons threw a firebomb into the farmhouse in hopes of driving Jesse out. But the only ones home are Jesse's mother, stepfather, and nine-year-old half-brother, Archie. Reuben and Zerelda think it's a firebomb and sweep it into the fireplace. That turns it into an actual bomb. Firebomb explodes and kills Archie and mangles his mother's right hand so bad it is later amputated. The explosion is heard as far away as three miles. John Newman Edwards frames the story of the Pinkerton's raid as a direct attack on the South by a northern enemy. No one is ever brought to trial for the murder of Jesse's half-brother, which again gives Jesse a reason to seek his own justice. If the law is not going to bring these guys to justice, then Jesse's going to do what he can. After the botched raid, Alan Pinkerton's detective agency is forced to back away from their more aggressive tactics. Jesse and Frank hide out in Nashville. In the summer, Z gives birth to Jesse's son, Jesse Edwards James. 1876 looks like it could be a banner year for Jesse. He opens his summer campaign with a $15,000 haul of cash from the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Then Bill Chadwell, a James gang member from Minnesota, suggests they rob what he thinks will be an easy mark in his home state, deep in Northern Territory. The suggestion is debated within the gang, but finally it's decided to head 400 miles north after Bob Younger informs the boys of a major depositor at First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. Here's Reconstructionist historian Eric Foner. You can rob a bank in Missouri. Why do you have to go hundreds of miles away to rob a bank? They got plenty of banks. Because he had heard that the Reconstruction governor of Mississippi, Adelbert Ames, had relatives up in Northfield, and a lot of his money was in this bank. And James decided, we're going to go up there, we're going to rob that bank to take the money of the Reconstruction governor of Mississippi. On September 7th, 1876, the James Younger Gang approaches the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota, just 45 miles south of Minneapolis. But with their long coats and impressive sidearms, the Missouri boys stand out among the mostly farming folk, many of them Swedish immigrants. Ooh, we intend to rob this here bank. Who's the cashier? You will pass safe now. <laughs> and you're listening to the story of Jesse James. And by the way, what a job Roger McGrath does on all of these. To hear more of what we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, the terrific final chapter in this remarkable story. This is Our American Stories.
knocking on my back door. It looks like Bob and Charlie Ford. How you doing, boys? Well, come on in. And that's Levon Helm again. And what a singer, by the way. Let's continue where we last left off in this remarkable story of Jesse James. This is Our American Stories. The James Younger Gang have just entered the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. Here's Roger McGrath with the finale. You are bad safe now. The key to the success for the James Gang has always been speed, quickness. Joseph Lee Haywood, the cashier that day, delayed them. When Joe Haywood, the bank cashier and Civil War veteran, won't open the vault, Jesse James loses his temper and shoots him in the head. Clear the streets! Jesse's men are firing off their guns, telling people to get back. This is kind of shock and awe uh, in the middle of the street. But these people aren't being shocked, and they're not being awed. Townspeople are starting to fight back. They're coming to protect their bank. By now, ordinary citizens, butchers, bakers, barbers, hardware merchants, farmers, and nary a lawman among them, were grabbing guns and giving the outlaws what for. Wielding a rifle from the second floor of a hotel, college student and future physician Henry Wheeler fatally shoots gang member Clell Miller. It's pandemonium. The outlaws are firing revolvers, which are pretty inaccurate on horseback. The townspeople have shoulder guns. They're very accurate. These guys are getting shot to pieces on the street. It was a complete disaster for the James gang. And the only thing for them to do is to try to get out of town alive. Hardware merchant Ansel Manning blasts Bill Chadwall into eternity and then shoots Bob Younger's horse out from under him. Younger rolls free of his wounded mount and takes cover behind a staircase. The outlaws return fire, but bullets are coming at them from several directions. Some unarmed citizens throw rocks. After seven minutes of gunfighting, Jesse orders a retreat and the gang splits up. Joseph Lee Haywood, the acting cashier that day, was a thorn in the side to the plans of these robbers. He delayed them. They don't get the money they come for. In fact, the safe was unlocked the whole time. Had they just tried that handle, it would have opened up and revealed about $15,000. The robbery is a complete failure. Now the Minnesotans want justice. More than a 1,000 grab their firearms and form posses and picket lines, triggering the largest manhunt in American history. There are at least a 1,000 men going after these guys. It was instant national news, especially when the James gang was associated with this robbery. Jesse and Frank were Southern boys and murderers. They were hated in Minnesota and everyone wanted to see them captured and brought to justice. Jesse and Frank go one way, but the Youngers are apprehended. This is the ill-fated moment in the career where what had been a successful gang has reached a dead end. 
over the course of the next two weeks, all of the James gang are either captured or killed, except for Frank and Jesse. These guys were masters at concealing themselves and getting away. They had to do it all during the Civil War. They were always outnumbered. They always had people chasing them. Northfield was the biggest disaster that James had experienced since the Civil War. They lost men that they had fought with. They both suffered gunshot wounds. But I think in a way, mentally in some way, they're wounded as well. Frank and Jesse ride a circuitous 500 miles back home to Missouri with just $26.70 to show for their efforts. Frank, he ultimately thought, the way this is going, it's going to be a bullet or a noose for them. But Jesse, he was diehard. After losing every member of his gang, the most wanted man in America goes into hiding over the next several years. Jesse spends his time living under aliases as a family man, now with two children in Missouri, Kentucky, and Kansas. Danger seats do not move. Then in 1879, with his spoils running low and his name out of the press, Jesse returns to action with the new James Gang and takes $6,000 from the Chicago and Alton Railroad. At this point, he's just finding somebody that can hold a gun and hold a horse and that hopefully is trustworthy. Jesse plans a job for April 4, 1882 in Platt City, Nebraska. A bank there is stuffed with cash and needs his attention. Two young and newly recruited gang members, Charles and Robert Ford, will go along. Charlie helped Jesse rob the Chicago and Alton Railroad, but Bob has yet to see any action. Jesse needs an extra man because he has uh, a bank robbery planned in Platte City. So he's willing to accept this young Bob Ford, who's Charlie's brother, because Jesse liked Charlie Ford, and, and I'm sure that Charlie vouched for Bob. They were not a ghost of what he'd had before, just common run-of-the-mill backcountry thieves and killers. You don't have the people who were trained, if you will, during the war. America's most wanted outlaw doesn't realize it. It's not the law he should be most afraid of, but his newest gang member, Bob Ford, who is secretly working for Missouri Governor Thomas Crittenden. The governor has posted a $10,000 bounty for Jesse, dead or alive, and Ford is determined to get it. Bob Ford was this media-saturated fan there's no better way to get close to the object of your admiration than to join his gang. And maybe in some way become a little bit like him. That's the picture of Bob Ford that we have today. Before they leave for Platte City, Jesse and the Ford brothers meet for breakfast at Jesse's home. After enjoying a hearty meal prepared for them by Jesse's wife, C, they retire to the living room to discuss their upcoming job. When Jesse steps up on a chair to straighten a picture, Bob Ford quickly draws his revolver and shoots Jesse through the back of the head. He topples to the floor and dies. America's most notorious outlaw 
is 34 years old. Bob and Charlie Ford are convicted of murder and sentenced to be hanged. In a matter of days, though, they receive a full pardon from Governor Crittenden. Nonetheless, the same governor fails to reward them with the $10,000 bounty. You know, Jesse James is already a hero to many people. When he's killed, he's now a martyr. And it's the way that he's killed. Had he been captured and tried, and had he been executed, it would have been much different. But this is a collusion between the governor of a state and a gang member who shoots his leader in the back of the head. Two years later, 27-year-old Charlie Ford, suffering from tuberculosis and morphine addicted, shoots himself to death with his own gun. A decade later, Bob Ford, who wasn't celebrated as the hero he thought he should have been, is shot to death by Ed O'Kelly. Jesse reaches incredible new heights in the American imagination as a hero, as a martyr, and as a representative of the defeated South. But I grew up in Jesse James country. When I was a kid, Jesse James was a hero. Now, I see Jesse as a tragic consequence of an awful, awful war, which was a tragic consequence of an awful, awful institution. Here's folk singer Almeida Riddle. I'm sure you've read of Frank and Jesse James. Well, my father's grandfather and their father was brothers. I never was ashamed that the James boys were my cousins, but neither was I proud of it. <laughs> Jesse James was a man who killed many men and robbed many express train. And the people all would say for many miles away They were robbed by Frank and Jesse James Jesse had a wife to mourn for his life And his children too were brave But a dirty little coward they called Robert Howard laid Jesse James in his grave. And what storytelling. Great job, as always, by Greg. And my goodness, Roger McGrath, what a star. He's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to all that he's done, all that we do, We have over 800 hours of storytelling up there. You're on a long trip? Download it all. You can get us on iTunes, too. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, the story of Jesse James, the story of the Civil War in a way in a divided country, here on Our American Stories.